At the end of one of our retreats on Maui, we uh, have the local Sangha members help us to disassemble the uh, retreat that we set up and pack up all the kitchen gear and all the bedding and all the uh, accoutrements for the hall and then uh, remove them from the rented venue and take them back to a storage room that we have at the house. And so it takes a day and there's half dozen, six or eight, ten people helping us and at one of the recent, more recent uh, retreats uh, at the end of the day, I was looking around to see if everything had been taken care of, and I saw this box of kitchen supplies. And I looked in it, and it was some things, leftovers from the kitchen, and I, I picked up uh, one box from the, uh, well, that was in the box, and I said to my friend Duke, I said, Duke, how would you like a box of wheat-free, gluten-free, sugar-free, chocolate chip less chocolate cookies. <laughs> and he said, uh, there are some things in life I can do without. <laughs> so tonight I want to speak about some things in life we can do without. In fact, some things that we can do quite well without. And I want to put it in the context of the forces of uh, purity that the bodhisattva developed in order to become a Buddha, in order to prepare the mind to awaken to the truth. And these forces are known as the paramis. And the paramis are the forces of purity, meaning it is the mind free of attachment, aversion, delusion. And it's the forces of Love, generosity, uh, energy, uh, renunciation, resolve, equanimity, truthfulness, familiar states of mind, mental states that we're all familiar with. But they are the ten practices of mindfulness, ten practices of uh, uh, renunciation, ten happiness practices. And they're all about letting go. When we come on a retreat like this, we let go of a lot. We let go of our usual uh, domestic, civic, social, and professional responsibilities, activities, entertainments, distractions, obligations, responsibilities. Not because there's something wrong with that, but that there is, within our own heart, another way of relating to all that life offers. And so we come to this place, which is the place of renunciation. It's secluded from our usual stuff. And we just don't have it available. And we work with the mind, we work with the heart, to come to a different relationship with, or to see that there is possible a different relationship to the stuff of our life. Where we get to get closer to a more refined, maybe a more subtle uh, 
way of being with ourselves in all that we do in life. So this practice of letting go, doing without, renunciation, is a movement in the mind from maybe the grosser, the more uh, dense, the more indulgent uh, activities of life to a more refined place of the mind where happiness is not dependent on things, activities, becoming, having, doing, but rather our sense of well-being comes from the qualities of the heart, qualities of the mind. Now, when I use the word renunciation, you know, I don't know about you, but for a long time for myself, it conjured up this, you know, memory that I've had of the Bodhisattva practicing these torturous ascetic disciplines for six years, not eating, not laying down, and, you know, just basically trying to torture, well, not trying to torture, but just trying to get the body to submit to the mind. And it didn't, it didn't look like fun to me. <laughs> and, uh, and yet we have these two images of the Bodhisattva, born as a prince into a luxurious, the luxurious lifestyle that was available at that time, living that life for 29 years, and then living this life of the ascetic, undertaking vigorous and rigorous practices of denial, arriving somehow at this awakened understanding that the path to freedom, the path to awakening, is midpoint between the two. Neither indulging in, nor in denial of, anything. And he characterizes that result as santisukha, the, the peace of happiness, of renunciation. And I think for most of us, it, we don't usually think of renunciation as you know, a place of happiness, or a place of fulfillment, or a place of peace even. You know, there are very few role models in our society, even historically, of renunciates or renunciation as a path in life. And in fact, our contemporary society is just the opposite. I mean, it is about indulging, having, becoming, getting, consuming. The more, the better, and the more ostentatious and visible and outrageous the better. And I think those of us who are here have a different view of that, but nevertheless, that's the conditioning that we face. That's the conditioning that we see. And yet, the renunciate, we could say, is an archetypal energy. It's an archetypal template within our heart, within our mind, where we may recognize it. We may recognize in ourselves some 
renunciate energy or direction or inclination, and yet we don't have a lot of models, role models for it. But we should remember too that when the Bodhisattva left the safety of his father's realm and palaces or whatever the luxurious places were that he was living, he saw four heavenly messengers, meaning he understood within his own heart these four things. The suffering of aging, sickness, and death. And the fourth heavenly messenger was a renunciate. Someone who could live in that world of life and death and sickness and aging and be at ease. And it's this fourth heavenly messenger that awoke in the Bodhisattva this long-held and nourished uh, aspiration to become a Buddha. And that prompted him to leave the palace and undertake his is a spiritual discipline for six years. So when I talk about renunciation, let's put it in a the context of the Four Noble Truths. Because when the Buddha awoke to the truth, the first that he articulated was the truth of dukkha, which is there's there's pain in life, there's suffering in life, there's insecurity, there's instability, uh, conditions can be oppressive. It's unsatisfactory. There's no enduring, permanent uh, relief in in that entanglement. And the second noble truth is that the cause of this dukkha, of this pain, insecurity, vulnerability, oppressiveness in life, is craving, attachment, longing, wanting, being identified with. That's the cause, the Buddha said. So, and he went on to, you know, to acknowledge the third noble truth, which is there is an end to dukkha. And the fourth noble truth is there's a path. But when we come to practice the four noble truths, you know, the first noble truth of dukkha is to be investigated, it's to be understood. And you can see even in a short retreat like this, that we have all kinds of strategies and beliefs and assumptions and ambitions and habits for denying, avoiding, minimizing dukkha in our life. We just keep moving. Our mind keeps moving, our body keeps moving. It's just like, if we can just keep moving, maybe it won't catch up with us. And so we really have to look hard. We really have to make an effort to see clearly into the experiences of our life to discover dukkha, really the depths of dukkha, and to begin to understand it. So the first noble truth of dukkha is to be investigated. The second noble truth, craving, is to be abandoned. Craving is to be abandoned. This is letting go. Letting go of that which we crave, that which we're identified with, that which we are attached to. 
And this is the whole journey of awakening, is seeing where we're attached, seeing what we're clinging to, and learning how to let go. This is the practice of renunciation. The Buddha said, if by renouncing a lesser happiness, one attains to a happiness that is greater, then the wise will pursue that happiness which is greater. Greater in the sense of more enduring, subtler, maybe more refined, more relief and releasing rather than the happiness of clinging and holding on. Years ago, and I'm sorry I didn't confirm today just when it was, but it's some decades ago now, there was a a famous experiment that uh, psychologists uh, foisted off upon some young children where they would take these young children into into a room and they would give them all a cookie or a pretzel or a candy bar or something that they would really want. And they would say to the children, now, this is yours. You can have it. You can eat it. But I got to leave for a minute. And uh, if when I come back, you still have this one, I'll give you another one. And so you see what the option is. The option is have what you want now or wait and you can have more. And so the psychologist would leave, go outside, turn around, watch him through, a, through the one-way mirror. You know? And he would see, or they would see, that some children would just immediately open up the package, stuff it, eat it, gone. There. Thank you very much. And some would just, well, just put it aside, knowing quite well they're just going to wait so they can have two. And a lot would just pick it up and look and smell and, you know, maybe open and you know, just, you know, and put it down and pick it up and put it down. And it's like, <laughs> you know, you know that desire? You want something so bad, but you want something more better, you know? And what they have found, now this, this was 20 or 30 years ago, what they have found is that those children who were able to set aside that personal satisfaction or gratification with confidence have, in traditional terms, let's say, more success in life, better off. And those who are just really immediately indulgent have had a lifestyle like that. Huh. Okay. So what do we mean when we're talking about renunciation? Dilgo Kinsir Rinpoche was a Tibetan Lama in the last century, very articulate, very astute, great teacher. And he said of renunciation, renunciation implies the strong wish to free oneself, not only from life's immediate sorrows, but from the seemingly unending cycle of conditioned existence. And with this renunciation comes a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. Heartfelt weariness 
and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. This is the treadmill that we often feel we're on. This endless seeking to get, to have, to become, to be recognized. And I think it's probably fair to say we all have felt what relief from that obsession, what a, what a relief it would be to be free of that obsession. Just like, oh, is there some way I can just step off of this treadmill? That is the seed of renunciation in your heart. And as difficult as it is to do and to realize and to taste and to get that relief, we still know, we can see, we can understand what that relief would be like. That flickering flame of renunciation or appreciating stepping off the treadmill is the work of practice. Now, when we talk about letting go, and if we can see that there's a possibility of not just becoming an ascetic, torturing ourselves, how do we do it? Well, you remember when you were a young child or younger, and you had your favorite toy or friend or sport or musical instrument, whatever it is, and when you woke up, that was your passion. That's what you did. You played with that doll, you played with that bike, you played this sport, you hung out with this friend, whatever it is. And for a period of time, that was your source of happiness, well-being, excitement, identity. It was just... Right? Where is it now? Where is that toy? Where is that sport? Where is that musical instrument? Where is that obsession? Somewhere back there, we let go, right? We let go of it. We didn't even notice it. We didn't even notice that we let go of something that was our passion. And yet, I mean, it may actually be up in the attic, down in the cellar, but nevertheless, you don't have the same relationship to it. The heart, the mind has let go. And it no longer finds that joy, satisfaction, need, no longer obsesses. It's just, we outgrew it, you could say. We just outgrew it. No longer appropriate, no longer serves, it, serves that purpose. Well, we haven't stopped growing. Just because we reach 30, 40, 50, 60, some of us 70 years old, we have not stopped growing. If you understand that life is a process, there's something to be learned, there's something to grow into, some knowledge to come to at every day of life. What is it that we have acquired? consumed, used, been identified with, found valuable in our life, that really was meaningful to us, 
that we might have outgrown. You know, if we don't do, if we don't take an inventory of our life, and we don't take a review, make a review of, this is what I believe, this is what I do, this is what I like, this is what I don't, we may not recognize what we have outgrown. And we may be hanging on to, well, activities, beliefs, people, ideas that no longer serve our purpose. For many years, and, and many of you know this, I was uh, really into the Grateful Dead. I still am. Nevertheless, you know, living in a commune in Maine, we were there because we were all deadheads and Pink Floydians, and partaking of the sacrament as much as necessary to stay in tune. And when the opportunity came, you go to the shows. There was a lot of attachment there, <laughs> a lot of identification, <laughs> and totally satisfying. Then I got involved in the Dharma and you know, started doing retreats, came here on staff, and over the years had done more practices. And then one time I had this perfect conjunction of spiritual conditions. I had a two-week retreat here. You know, come in, just like you. Got a week down, another week to go. Just calm down, clear out, open up, become really sensitive. The last day of which, the Grateful Dead were playing in Providence just an hour away. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Calm down, clear out, open up, get sensitive, go to the show. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, it was unbearable. It was just unbearable. It was so loud and so hot and so abrasive to the sensitivity that I was attuned to that, I mean, I stayed for the show. I didn't leave early. <laughs> but it was a rude awakening that, while I still appreciate the music, as certain benefits of the reach of the show and the shows that just wasn't appealing to me anymore. I didn't know that. I had outgrown that level of excitement, attachment, identification, whatever. Didn't know it until I saw. And so I suggest to each of you to just do a review. What are you still hanging on to? What ideas about yourself? What beliefs? Behaviors? Assumptions? Friends? that no longer serve your highest aspiration, which you might have gotten in touch with here. What is it that you do that doesn't support your being here or doing this kind of practice? Or is in conflict with the understandings that you have of yourself and the, purpo and the purpose of your life or the aspiration of your life? Well, if we don't see, we can't let go of what we don't know we're holding on to. And so, here's a place to look. So even as we grow chronologically, we may not grow uh, spiritually or mentally, let's say. 
a choice. So we can outgrow. And there are many other ways that we can practice renunciation where we can let go of a lesser happiness to attain, to observe, to experience a more subtle, a more enduring happiness. So I want to speak about that. Of course, one of the most obvious ways, and the Buddha spoke about this maybe first among all topics, is to practice generosity. Generosity is just learning how to let go. And the Buddha, it's not a particularly Buddhist practice, but it's the foundation for learning how to let go. And when we practice generosity with gifts or funds or knowledge or time or whatever it is that we are willing to offer, we have to be willing to let it go. That's the whole practice of generosity, is we learn to that we have something that we're attached to, identified with, and we can offer it. We can let it go for another purpose. It's not the gift so much that we let go of, it's the attachment we let go of. And when you understand that, you realize that practicing generosity is not just to benefit the recipient, but it's to benefit yourself by cultivating this ability to let go and to be quite happy in doing it. Because that's a knowledge that we don't get anywhere else. We don't get training in learning how to let go and be happy. So Mahasi Sayadaw, one of the grandfathers of this tradition of practice, he says, it is generosity that one can rely on for one's wealth, a sense of abundance, one's happiness, and one's humanity. Because as we make gifts, as we offer, as we practice in sharing our abundance, whatever it is we have, it's to someone else that benefits. It's being human. It's it's connecting at the human level with those in need. Years ago, I was um, at a small group in uh, Portland and would see them several times a year for a week, weekend, I mean. And while in town, I would stay in a hotel eating my meals in the local restaurant. And when I would go out on the streets from the hotel in the morning to go to the restaurant, there were a lot of homeless people. Homeless street street people, panhandlers, beggars. And I've never lived in a city, so I was a little uncomfortable. Actually, I was terrified. <laughs> you know, I just wasn't familiar. I didn't, didn't know how to relate to, be with, deal with so many uh, people that I was not familiar with. I just didn't know. And so I would try to avoid them, walk on the other side of the street, but they'd be over there, take a side street, they'd be down there. It's like, <laughs> they were there. You know, and after a couple of trips to town, I realized I'm suffering. I'm afraid. I'm confused. Uh, I don't feel safe. Uh, I don't know how to relate to these people. And so I realized, well, they're not going to do anything about my fear <laughs> or my anxiety. I got to do something about it. That's what mindfulness does. Mindfulness, you know, remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. I was recognizing it. Fearful. Anxious, confused, unknowing. So I made it a habit of just going up to and greeting them whenever I saw them. Just go up, greet, hello, how are you doing? 
How's your day? What's going on? What do you need? Or how much do you need? Now there's an interesting question. I mean, the answers I got were interesting. But what I found over, you know, just a few, and every time actually, that I would greet and meet and, and offer some token of, you know, support. They're human. <laughs> They're just like us. They're just people that have their own conditions in life, more needy maybe than mine, in that sense, and quite willing to engage, not threatening for the most part. There's some that are scary, but for the most part, you can connect. And after a little conversation and a token gesture of support, I could sense they were connected, they were happy, I was happy. We both felt good about the moment, the time together, and we can move on into the day. What I realized is that when we practice generosity, we may give a gift of, well, uh, whatever value. It can be a little or it can be great. But what we always give is recognition of humanity and love. Every time. And the more love you give, the more love you have. Who benefits from that giving? Who benefits from that generosity? I certainly did, and so did they. When you understand this and, and practice generosity, practice that kind of letting go, the, um, you know, the, the amount of financial obligation of being generous is minimal compared to the benefit to your heart. Incomparable. So this kind of generosity, uh, you know, as the Buddha said, if beings knew as I know the resultant benefit of generosity, they would not let any opportunity go by without sharing. What did the Buddha know? If beings knew as I know the benefit of generosity, they would not let a single opportunity go by without sharing if there was someone to share with. So, what are we doing here? Well, we're practicing the Dharma. We're practicing, you know, awakening to the truth of our own life. And the Buddha said also, the gift of the Dharma excels all forms of giving. The gift of the Dharma excels all other forms of giving. What does that mean? When we practice the Dharma, we become the Dharma. We become the way it is. We recognize that. And as we live our life with awareness, with kindness, with renunciation, with generosity, with uh, the precepts, with wisdom, with compassion, our life is a gift to everyone we share life with. Not because we're so special, but because, well, we're somewhat awake, a little more awake. We live a life of integrity. We live a life of honesty. We live a life of meaning, of purpose, of value, of caring. And this is a gift to others. It creates the, a sense of community, of friendship, of intimacy, of bonding, of Unity with each other. 
And to live in a world where you're not threatened and fearful and afraid and competitive and brutal. To have someone in your life like that or many in your life like that is something we'd all wish for. And that's the way we live. You know, we don't have to advertise. You don't have to talk about the Dharma at all. You don't have to teach and preach and proselytize or anything like that. You just have to live the truth as you know it from your own awareness. That's the greatest gift that we can give. That's, that's the best we can do for others. Be kind, be generous, be understanding, be patient. We all are to a degree and we all have room for improvement. <laughs> so, practicing generosity, a way of letting go for a kind of happiness. I'm remembering I was in the practicing in the monastery with uh, Sayadaw Tejaniya a decade ago or so. And in the monastery, uh, most mornings, but not all mornings, uh, at breakfast they would serve uh, lepeye, which is sweet, milky tea. It's strong tea. It's very sweet, made with um, condensed milk. And, okay, you know, we'd have it half the days. But I really liked that tea. So I wanted to make sure that we had it as often as possible. So I made an offer to... um, (laughs) It's kind of a self-interested gesture of generosity that I would supply, you know, the funds for tea any morning that they they weren't going to have it. So, you know, back here in the States, you know, to get my tea, you know, go to Starbucks, get a chai, four, four twenty-five, four thirty-five, four forty-five, whatever it is, you know, that's what it is. So the day came; it was my off, my offering of tea. Good, two hundred, two hundred fifty people at the monastery. They all got their cup of tea in the morning. Great. I went into the office at noontime to see what the bill was going to be for serving for offering, you know, two hundred and fifty cups of tea. Two hundred and fifty dollars. I mean, it's like nothing. It's like I could spend, I mean, not, not $250, sorry, $2.50. $2.50. It's like now, okay, so I got $2.50. Do I go get half a cup of chai at Starbucks or do I give 250 people a cup of tea? Which one brings you more happiness? Think of that. Which would bring you more happiness? That's the way generosity works. Okay. But let's face it, there are other things that we're holding on to, like the obsessing habits of the mind. So last night, Deborah spoke about a whole range of um, practices, one of which was living in harmony with one another. So as we you know, move about in our life, we discover that, you know, we sometimes do things carelessly or we do things that cause ourselves and others harm because, you know, we have this habit of speaking this way, acting this way, inadvertently or maybe even with full knowledge, harming ourselves, you know, putting ourselves in a position of being regretful, remorseful, uh, feeling guilty, maybe being ostracized, blamed, punished even, 
out of carelessness. So we hear these teachings of living in harmony, purifying our speech, purifying our behavior, and living, taking, undertaking the precepts, for example, as we do here. And for some of us, it's not very difficult. Some of them aren't, and some of them are. Some of them are a real challenge, you know? And so we bolster our aspiration with knowledge and resolve and effort and trial and error. Hopefully learning from our experience. Or as Sayadaw Tejaniya says, you know, mistakes are the stepping stones to wisdom. Oh, if you understand that you do something, you know, and from a conventional point of view, it's a mistake. Someone gets hurt, things happen, whatever. It's a mistake if you don't learn anything from it. If you learn something from it, if you learn about yourself and you adjust your behavior, it's a stepping stone to greater wisdom. Okay, so we come on retreat here. We take the precepts. Seems easy enough in the context of being here, but you know how it is out there. We don't live in a society that values the precepts. Okay. We live in a world, you know, just take right speech. Just take speaking the truth. And I'm not just talking about current political situation. I mean, hello, we live in a society, a culture that values, well, in, in its oblique, opaque, crazy way, you know, deception. You know, and misleading being deceitful. And we get this conditioning every day. How can we live in this world and not be conditioned by that? Right? This is what we're up against. You know, as the Buddha said, you know, to practice the Dharma, you will be going against the stream of the conventional conditioning, social, cultural conditioning of society. So, wisdom, it is said, is the anticipation of consequences. So when you anticipate some of these precepts, or you anticipate the consequences of not keeping the precepts, it's wisdom that says, I don't want to suffer with that. I remember when I used to smoke tobacco, among other things, but tobacco. And, uh, you know, at some point while I was young and younger, teenager, smoking, the Surgeon General comes out with this report that says, if you continue to smoke, uh, there's a good likelihood that you're going to, you know, some have, have some health consequences later in life. That wasn't strong enough until I saw the pictures of those with the health problems of having smoked a lifetime. And then I could see that there's consequences. And anticipating the you know, possibility of those health consequences, it encouraged me to give up smoking. I like smoking. And those of you who smoke, you know, it's, it's, there's a reason we smoke. It's pleasurable. But, as the Buddha said, even though the pleasure is great, the regret is greater. It's easy to do that which is of no real benefit to oneself, but it is difficult indeed to do that which is truly beneficial and good. 
So we use our knowledge. We use our, we get the information, we use our intelligence, we see what it is that needs to be done or not done in order to minimize unwelcome consequences. This, is be, it, this, takes, this takes mindfulness. This takes awareness. You need to recognize what's going on in your own heart and mind to do that. And we learn to, we learn to let go. Several years ago, after Kamala and I had finished teaching the three-month course, we returned to Maui. And when we usually returned after being away for three months, we'd go down to the down to the beach, and have a day at the beach, and nice dinner at the resort, and just to kind of land back on Maui. Well, this time we went to a restaurant, had a nice meal. At the end of which, we looked at the dessert menu, and scanned down through the options and decided we would take the uh, chocolate, 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 chocolate thing, (laughs) thing, whatever that was. It was multiple chocolates. Okay, so it arrived. We kind of divvied it up and had our chocolate, 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 chocolate. And uh, after which, you know, it's a little, (laughs) it's a little hard to bear. And I, I just, was feeling how unpleasant it was. And I just blurted out, I, this is stupid. I'm not going to eat any chocolate for next year. And Kamala says, what? <laughs> I said, I'm not going to eat any chocolate for a year. I'm just going to give it up. She said, you're kidding. I said, no, I'm not. I'm kind of I'm like that. And she said, well, if you're not going to eat any chocolate, I guess I'm not either. So. We said, okay, we're not going to eat any chocolate for a year. We gave ourselves one out. You know, if we got an upgrade on a flight and in first class they happened to serve a chocolate or chocolate ice cream, we would, ex- <laughs> we would accept it, okay? I mean, we, didn't, we weren't craving it, you know, we weren't seeking it. We just kind of receiving what's offered. Like, right? <laughs> well, there's, you know, the first couple of times it was like, don't, don't, you know, can't, can't go for the chocolate, chocolate, chocolate. So we made it through the year. And at the end of the year, I realized a couple of really valuable lessons there. And the first is, key lime pie is not so bad. <laughs> I never would have eaten it before, but... <laughs> okay. And the second is, the power of an unshakable resolve is amazing. When you really decide, this is to my benefit for whatever reason, and it's either not going to happen or it's going to happen, that resolve, it's alive. It's not like you make the resolve and it just happens. You make the resolve and you affirm it, and you reaffirm it, and you confirm it, and you learn from it, you grow with it, and it becomes a living part of your heart. It's amazing what that kind of resolve and renunciation can do. Still, practicing generosity, growing up, 
uh, undertaking uh, the precepts or living according to wisdom, really. There's more to be done. As we've noticed here, when we get to looking at the mind, we may be living, we may be keeping the precepts and we're not acting out, but the mind has habits. And we can say, I don't want to obsess about this. I don't want to obsess about my fear, my anxiety, my future, you know, my relationship. It's just like, I don't want to be afraid. I don't want to be anxious. I don't want to be depressed. And yet we can't stop it. We have these habits of mind. Or these habits of mind have us, I should say. And we get caught. We're just stuck in there. We are holding on to them. They, they aren't holding on to us. They don't have any personality to do that. We have cultivated these habits. And we continue to cultivate these habits. Every time that we get caught in obsessing with any of these states of mind, we are reaffirming our attachment and identification with them. So, as much as we might like to just say, okay, mind, stop obsessing. It doesn't work. We actually have to train the mind, just as we've been doing here. Train the mind to see, to recognize the conditions that give rise to this obsession and to choose moment by painful moment to not go there or to recognize this state of mind as just a state of mind. It's a visitor to the mind. It's not who I am. It's a habit. And when we can do that, when we can practice awareness of these obsessing states of mind, every time we don't just act it out, being caught in it, identifying with it, the mind finds another way. In the mind, we, we create new pathways of dealing with these conditions, not just the obsession, but the conditions that give rise to anxiety or fear or jealousy or anger or impatience. The, the situations still come. The opportunity, the potential is still there to react in that way. And we see it and we feel it. And we see this habit of mind wanting to take over. And we just say, no. Let me be aware of this. Let me be aware of this. Let me be aware of this. What can I learn about this? What's the, what is the nature of this obsessing state of mind? And as we train the awareness to be aware of these states of mind, rather than acting out these states of mind, we are actually learning how to let go. How to let go of the need to act or react or in that way. And you know, you can see, it's not easy. It's not easy. It takes, well, how many times have we been caught in, you know, our fear, our anxiety, our depression? How many moments have we been caught by that? Well, that gives you an idea of how many moments you have to feel that and not get caught in that before we're going to decondition, let go, de deconstruct the whole apparatus of identification with that. But that's what we're doing. Every time. Every time you see the impulse to be, you know, reactive in whatever way. And you don't. You don't go there. Or you, you recognize it. You're aware of it. This weakens it. Finds a new pathway in the heart, in the mind. 
another way of relating to these, well, painful situations, uh, difficult circumstances, conditions in life. And so we train the mind. Now, this is where most of practice takes place. We cultivate this awareness and we get enough awareness to see this is what's going on. We're caught in these obsessive, habitual, reactive states of mind. We have enough mindfulness to see that, but we don't have enough wisdom to know how to let go. And that's why it seems so painful to practice. And we can think, why should I do this practice? It just makes me uncomfortable. It makes me struggle. It makes me, it's painful. It's not like it makes the struggle and makes the pain. The pain and the struggle is already in our minds. Practice is just revealing it to us. As I said, the first noble truth of dukkha is to be investigated, is to be understood. We have to understand, oh, the dukkha is already there. We've just been hiding from it by our obsessive strategy, dysfunctional strategies in life. Okay. So what we're doing is, well, investigating dukkha. It's already there. And finding another way of doing something different. So on my first retreat, it was a few years after being getting out of college, during which at college I'd started out in engineering and had taken a couple of years of uh, advanced math classes. And back then, we didn't have handheld computers or calculators. We did all of our math by slide rule and longhand, longhand mind. You know, it's just like a lot of mind, you know. So I was good at doing math, mathematical formulas just in my head and just, you know, with a slide rule to find out just where it was supposed to be. So go to my first retreat. When my mind wandered, it wandered to mathematical calculations. So I'm sitting in a room like this, okay, it's about 35 feet across, it's 10 feet high, it's 65 feet long, that's how many cubic feet. And just, so I'd be, I'd be kind of, you know, my mind would wander and I'd kind of come to like this and I'd go, do I need to be doing this right now? <laughs> but you know what? If you don't practice awareness, you won't see your habits of mind. That's what my mind did. You know, when I had any discretionary time, it was just, oh, calculating things that were useless. <laughs> Not even useless. It was worse than useless. So there's a, there's, a, there's a really good lesson from that experience. Get yourself this mantra. Not now. And when you find yourself engaged in some obsessive, compulsive habit, just look at it and say, not now later, if at, if at all. Because so much of what we get obsessed about is, it, it doesn't need that kind of obsessing. You know, it just, and if you can just put it aside later, you're not feeding that obsession. And you're just kind of tricking it into going away or, or staying on the side. Reminding yourself that you don't need to be doing that. <clears throat> so it really works to uh, help let go of these, uh, well, habits of mind that we begin to discover. Okay. So, 
as we get more skillful at being aware, mindful, seeing our habits, putting them aside, meaning we're not indulging in you know, the attachment, the aversion, and the confusion, delusion. And the mind, in a moment of not being caught in attachment, aversion, or delusion, is pure. The functioning of the mind is pure. It's not contaminated. It's not, it's not defiled. There's, not, there's nothing obscuring the activity of the mind. And when the mind is pure for a moment, there's a little delight. And when the mind is pure for a, an extended or an enduring period of time, moment after moment after moment, just noticing, 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 rather than indulging, 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 indulging. When we're just noticing, and the mind is free of the torments or the defilements for a sustained period of time, the activity of the mind, or the mind does what it does to know, it, it, the mind takes great delight. The mind gets really happy. The mind gets tranquil, it gets happy, it gets pleasant, it just loves not being tormented. This isn't you. Yes, we too. But the mind by itself just gets delighted. And what happens then is the tranquility becomes pervasive, the continuity becomes extensive, the joy in the, in the mind becomes noticeable, the faith and confidence in our practice takes off like a rocket, the clarity becomes brilliant, uh, the non-reactivity, because there's no hindrances or no defilements in the mind, becomes really recognizable. All the spiritual goodies, all the things that we've been looking for, for all of our prior practice times, start to arise, and sometimes intensely. And the, the, the joy can be ecstatic, and the bliss can be sublime, and the clarity can be piercing, and then understanding the knowledge can be just sparkling. And when these, when these spiritual goodies arise, it is because of the continuity of your awareness. It's a, it's a natural result of the continuity of awareness. So it's a sign of good practice. That's good. But because they are so pleasant and so unique and so dramatic, we indulge in them. We say, yes! Finally, I got it. This is what I've always been looking for. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. This is great. I'm doing so good. It's so much better now than I used to be doing. And this is great. I hope it lasts this way for the rest of the sitting, if not the rest of the retreat. And we get excited. And we indulge in it. And we get identified with it. This is happening to me. This is my mind. This is my insight. You know, and you can see where that's going. Yeah? We get attached to it. We get identified with it. We hang on to it. We hang on to it in three ways, one of three ways. Either conceit, meaning comparing mind. We look at this and we say, I am doing so much better than I was before. Yes. Or, this is a good one, I wonder if anyone else has ever experienced things like this. <laughs> now, when I heard my teacher Upandita say, oh, when you get to this stage, you know, you may think that, you, you, you may even question, doubt even, that your teacher has ever had that kind of experience. <laughs> And I said, well, that's baloney, until it happened to me. And then I saw, this is how blinded we can get with our attachment to our experience. Conceit, comparing mine, or craving, just craving, recognizing how pleasant it is. I want it, I have it, it's happening to me, it's mine. 
That's craving. That's holding on. That's really being caught. Or wrong views. We think, this is me. This is, this is my experience. This is my essence. This is who I really am. And, you know, once I, get, once I clean out a little bit, this is who I really am. And so we have these wrong views about ourselves. So we have this conceit, craving a wrong view. And we indulge in them. They're, it's as if we just assume this is the way it's going to be. This is who I am. This is how it is. This is it. You know, we don't really... If somebody said, do you think that's it? You say, no, no, no. But really, in our heart, we do. We have this... You know, there's this, there's this little voice of assumption. It's not really a thought. It's not really an emotion. And it's not really audible. But you feel like, this is it. This is me. It's great. Until we see, until we recognize that these things also don't last. They can be pretty oppressive. I mean, you know, when you get to the point where ecstasy has just been going on too long, this is oppressive, I wish this thing would shut off, you know, then you realize that these things are out of your control. They're not you. They're not yours. You can't make them happen. You can stop them from happening, of course. Just stop practicing. But until we see that these experiences, too, have the characteristic of being unsatisfactory, impermanent, and not yours, not controllable, then we begin to see with insight. And it's these insights into these three characteristics that loosens the grip of the unexamined assumptions. We can't do this intentionally. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to let go of that. You can't do that. It is only the insightful understanding of the three characteristics that will loosen the grip and let go. Renounce indulgence, taking delight in those spiritual goodies. Those spiritual goodies are called pseudo-nibbana. Deborah referred to it last night. Pseudo-nibbana, because when it happens, you will, you will think this is it. And until you continue practicing, recognizing the three characteristics, and arrive at the, an alternate understanding, which is, this is good, but it's not it. <laughs> this is just a scenic turnout on the route. You will definitely pass this place on the route. You definitely will. But it's not the goal. It's not the, it's not the end of the journey. Until you come to that understanding and suffer the disillusionment of your own attachment. You can't, you can't go on. You can't, you can't progress beyond that until you see that you've been deluded. You've been disillusioned. You've been uh, caught. You've been attached to and obsessed with. And then it's the understanding of the three characteristics that's going to loosen the grip of the mind holding on to them. And you can move on. George Dreyfus, a Tibetan scholar and translator, he says, happiness is not gratification on the hedonic treadmill, not even the spiritual hedonic treadmill, but rather it is a sense of well-being. And it's when we can receive these states of mind, see them for what they are, and let them go, only then do we have a sense of well-being, not indulging in that.
pleasurable experience of the spiritual goodies. Renunciation through these insights is essential. This is the path of insight, vipassana, is awakening to the understand, the truth, the understandings of impermanence, the unsatisfactory characteristic, the not-self characteristic of all experience. So when, when our practice is maturing and we're seeing moment to moment what arises, when the insight into impermanence ripens, we see not only this moment, whatever it is, mental, physical, emotional thing, experience that arises due to its own causes and conditions, we see it and we understand it's impermanent. As fantastic as it is, as scary as it might be, as dreadful, it's, it's impermanent. And that knowledge becomes paramount. Now imagine that everything you saw, everything you knew, you also recognized at, the, at that time, it's impermanent. It doesn't last. It doesn't last for two split seconds. It just appears and it's gone. When that knowledge is in the mind, in every moment, what are you going to hold on to? What is the mind going to reach out to and hold on to when it knows it's not there? It's gone. As soon as you see it, it's gone. And so the mind doesn't have to let go of anything. The mind isn't even hanging on to anything. It isn't even reaching for anything. As Suzuki Roshi said, true renunciation is not giving up the things of the world, but it's in knowing that they go away. True renunciation is knowing everything you experience goes away. You don't reach for it. You don't hold on to it. You don't have to let go of it. You understand. Oh, this is the way it is. The truth of dukkha, dukkha is a characteristic of, again, all experience. And dukkha has, you know, dukkha is pain. Some of our experience is painful. We know that. Or it is changeable. It's unstable. It's unsteady. And even if it's good, even if your experience is good, it doesn't, it doesn't last. It's unstable. It can change in any moment. And we know this from our health, our careers, our finances, our relationships. Think, things are just not stable. This is dukkha. It may not be painful right now, but because it's not reliably steady, we live with this insecurity. That's dukkha. And sometimes experience is just oppressive. It's just too hot, it's too hungry, it's too heavy, it's too burdensome, it's, too, it's just oppressive. This is dukkha also. And when the understanding of the dukkha characteristic is arising in the mind, when the insight into the dukkha characteristic is present, whatever you see, whatever you experience, whatever you're aware of, comes with the knowledge that it has the dukkha characteristic. It is either painful, it's changeable, it's oppressive. And when you understand this about every experience, what is the mind going to reach for? Why would the mind reach for something that's painful or oppressive or unstable? The mind doesn't. So the mind is letting go continually, moment after moment after moment after moment. It just doesn't, it doesn't grab on. That's the dukkha characteristic. That's the relief from the knowledge of dukkha. The experience of dukkha is painful. It's oppressive. It's unstable. It's insecure. 
But the knowledge of dukkha is liberating. And then there's the anatta characteristic. They call it not-self, but what does that actually mean? Well, I'll give you an example. You know when you see a rainbow in the sky? There isn't any one of you in the room that would try to reach that rainbow, catch it, put it in a box, and send it to someone. Or even put it in an envelope. Or even put it in a jar. Whatever. I mean, how do you, what would you do? Why? Because that rainbow is a colorful appearance due to specific causes and conditions. One of which is moisture in the air, the angle of viewing, the sunlight. And if those conditions are just right, the rainbow, this colorful appearance, appears. But none of us believe that there is anything substantial or enduring or inherent or any essence to a rainbow. There's nothing there, right? It's an appearance due to conditions. You can't touch it. You can't grab it. You can't hold on to it. None of us are going to try to hold on to it. Why? Because we know, well, it has no inner essence. It has no enduring substance. When the dukkha character, when the anatta characteristic, the knowledge of the anatta characteristic is arising in the mind, then this is the understanding you have for everything that you see, everything that you experience. This that you're experiencing now has arisen due to causes and conditions. It may be very colorful, very enticing, very substantial looking, totally valuable that you'd love to have forever, but you understand there's nothing there. It's just an ephemeral, evanescent appearance due to conditions. And that understanding keeps the mind from reaching for, grasping onto, holding onto. The mind doesn't. It just knows. This that I see, this that I feel, this that I experience has the anatta characteristic. And the mind doesn't reach. As the Buddha said, I teach one thing and one thing only. Suffering and the end of suffering. Which sounds like two things, but actually it's one thing. <coughs> suffering. In the Diamond Sutra it says, see all of this world as a star at dawn. Do you know how ephemeral that star of dawn, star at dawn is? A bubble in a stream. Do you know how fragile that is? A flash of lightning in a flickering in a summer cloud. If you don't, if you're not right there for it, it's just an image. A flickering lamp, a phantom in a dream. This is the anatta characteristic. This is the way all of life's experience is. And when we understand this, I mean, this is understand, not just see, but it's to understand deeply in your, in your heart. Then you don't reach, you don't hold on, and you don't have to let go. And if you don't hold on, that is the end of dukkha. These three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, nanata, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not-self, these are the doorways to the unconditioned. When the mind doesn't reach, it doesn't have to let go. When the mind lets go of everything, it lets go of all conditioned things and falls into the unconditioned. And the unconditioned is Nibbana. It is a reality. It can be known. It can be discovered through practice, through insight. These three characteristics are the doorway.
and accessing the unconditioned is letting go of all conditioned things, all objects and all knowing. And yet it can be realized, recognized. And the unconditioned uproots the latent torments or the latent defilements from the mind. Uproots. That's a radical letting go, renunciation, that you cannot do by intention nor by training, but through the clear seeing and understanding, this is the way it is. That's why we practice Vipassana, to arrive at this understanding. And even though you've heard it and you may read it, that's not your understanding. It actually has to be developed through your own practice, through your own experiments with awareness and wisdom. But it's possible. And you shouldn't fool yourself into thinking it isn't. It's not only for people at the time of the Buddha, monks, nuns, and others. No, no. It's not, you don't have to live in a cave forever either. No. You have all that you need. You have the instruction. You have guides. You have the opportunity. The Buddha did his work, and you have to do yours. And it's possible. The Buddha said, the purpose of my teaching, of this holy life, of the Dharma, it's not for gaining merit, nor for good deeds, nor for rapture, nor for concentration, but for the sure heart's release. This and this alone is the reason for the teachings of the Buddha. The sure heart's release. Letting go. Just sit quietly for a moment and let these words settle into our heart. Renunciation implies the strong wish to free oneself not only from life's immediate sorrows, but from the seemingly unending cycle of conditioned existence. And with this renunciation comes a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. But if by renouncing a lesser happiness, one attains to a happiness that is greater then the wise will pursue that happiness which is greater. So, thank you for listening to the Dharma. So, it's nearly quarter of nine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.